Hello and welcome to the Reshaping Legal Services podcast, hosted by the Legal Services Board. My name is Tanya Hardcastle. I'm a Regulatory Policy Manager at the LSB and I'll be presenting this series. In March 2021, the Legal Services Board published its 10-year sector-wide strategy to reshape legal services to better meet society's needs. Since publishing the strategy, the LSB has been developing plans to curate the strategy, or in other words, engage the sector to collaborate and deliver on the challenges identified. Now, as part of this, the LSB has developed a reshaping legal services microsite, which will be a platform for stakeholders to showcase their work and how it aligns with the strategy. Alongside this, we have also developed the Reshaping Legal Services podcast series to document progress against the strategy's challenges across the sector and look at ways for stakeholders to collaborate and deliver to reshape legal services to better meet the needs of society through fairer outcomes, stronger confidence and better services. So the first episode of the Reshaping Legal Services podcast series looks at how we can dismantle barriers to a diverse and inclusive profession which falls under the fairer outcomes theme of the strategy. In this episode, I will be interviewing Debbie Foster, Professor of Employment Relations and Diversity at Cardiff Business School and the Chair of Lawyers with Disabilities Division Law Society, Jane Burton, who tell us a bit more about the Lawyers with Disabilities Division Law Society, as well as their joint research project called Legally Disabled, which produces valuable research on the career experiences of disabled people in the legal profession. And then, in the latter part of this episode, I'll be speaking to Elizabeth Rimmer, who is Chief Executive of Law Care, who tells us about her work and where she sees the future of legal services. So, First up, I speak to Debbie Foster and Jane Burton. I began some research actually about five years ago now, I'm thinking, on the career barriers faced by disabled people in the legal profession. And when we um, put the research forward, what we really wanted to do was co-produce this with disabled people within the profession. And we approached the Lawyers with Disabilities Division of the Law Society. And this is how I got to know Jane, uh, Jane Burton, who is chair of the LDD at the Law Society. We asked if they would co-produce our research in partnership, which meant that they were involved in developing the research in publicising it, but also getting people to participate in it. But framing some of the questions as we went along. I should say I'm from a business school background. I'm not from a legal background. I'm really a sociologist of work and employment. And as such, that was quite an advantage, really, because we came to this fresh. We didn't have lots of preconceptions as a research team. And then we were able to ask the LDD and its members what issues they thought were really important for us to investigate. So we were really, really wanting to pin down from their lived experiences, what they thought the big questions were in terms of the issues and the barriers and the opportunities that they faced within the legal profession. Let's now hear from Jane Burton, Chair of the Lawyers with Disabilities Division, Law Society. LDD has been going for over 30 years. 
not always with the same name, but we've been part of the Law Society, uh, representing legal professionals, uh, students, um, disabled lawyers, uh, retired lawyers, law lecturers. And we offer advice and support for our members. They come to us quite often with their problems. We also have events. We run roundtables. And those are now mostly online, but some we had an in-person event in the summer. We lobby government, we work with the SRA, and latterly we're working with the LSB. Um, an example of some of our work with the SRA is working on the SQE in relation to the reasonable adjustments for the exam. We have published, as a result of working with um, Debbie and Natasha at Legally Disabled, We've produced um, some reports and guidance. One is easy wins for firms and organisations. The other is reasonable adjustment guidance. We have a project RISE, which we're now um, spearheading with a couple of firms, and that's rolling out further. It's for part-time training contracts. So we have lots of things that we do, um, and I encourage anyone who's listening who's a disabled legal professional, to join LDD. It's free. You go to My Law Society and you can sign up to, to get our updates. Thank you very much, Jane. That's that's really helpful. Um, there's clearly a lot of activities that um, LDD do, uh, very active within the legal sphere, making sure that you're bringing in various different stakeholders as well. And that's that's really good to see. And yeah, great that you're working with the LSB as well. So the big question really uh, at the moment is, you know, how, how do we remove barriers for disabled people in the legal profession? It will be good to perhaps start with you sharing some findings of the legally disabled research and the outcomes in terms of the work that stemmed uh, from these findings undertaken by Lawyers with Disabilities Division. So um, perhaps we could start off with some of the key recommendations from the report and whether there are any which Lawyers with Disabilities Division have since developed work on to address those recommendations. Some of the key findings really we've thought were divided into issues related to people getting into the profession and issues related to people getting on in the profession and progressing. And one of the early key findings was that um, securing training and employment in the profession was difficult for a lot of disabled people. The application and recruitment process was found to be problematic, most notably trying to secure things like reasonable adjustments when going for interviews we had a number of instances of people reporting that when they dealt with recruitment agencies, private recruitment agencies that legal firms employ, there were very negative attitudes towards people as soon as they said that they were disabled and perhaps they needed a reasonable adjustment during the interview process. Uh, it was literally people reporting things like, you know, it all, was all going well until I mentioned that I needed a reasonable adjustment because I'm a wheelchair user and I need to know how to get into the building and maybe I can't do stairs, so I'd need a room to be interviewed downstairs if there isn't a lift. And all of a sudden, the position was no longer available. And it was as blatant as that, which was a bit shocking, actually, because it's the sort of thing that you think, hmm, surely that happened 20 years ago. 
But uh, given that we've had disability discrimination legislation since 1995, you'd think really basic reasonable adjustments like access to buildings, knowing that maybe somebody might need more time or if they were visually impaired, they might need help locating the interview room. Really simple reasonable adjustments weren't being provided. And we also found a lot of disabled people were having to do research themselves on organisations that they were applying to. And they would say they would look on websites and there was no information available on a lot of websites where there was information available about accessible buildings or accessible practices. They had a much more positive outlook on going for an interview or maybe working for that employer. But the vast majority of people said, that there was a lack of information generally, there was a lack of signposting about where to get information about things like reasonable adjustments. And there was just a very negative attitude towards them as disabled candidates. And I think if you can't actually get into the legal profession in the first place, then you're not going to locate people within there who are disabled people and are representative of the wider population. So um, there's some really basic things that we found were were lacking within the sector. And I think these are things that, you know, people uh, like legal professionals, uh, professions, but also regulators could focus on um, making them requirements of organisations that they have very basic checklists of what they need to do in terms of providing accessible technology, accessible information, accessible premises those sorts of things. And they would also benefit clients as well. So it's not just, you know, about employment. It's also a good business model. The striking thing is that your findings also show that there are there are many more disabled people in the profession that, than believed, uh, many of whom have non-visible impairments that they conceal. So I, I think you already touched upon this, but, you know, I think perhaps what you said from the research, it shows that, that there is a reason why they choose to conceal their identity as a disabled person, because they know that they won't be treated in the same way if, if they were to reveal that they've got a disability. Yes, yes. You know, in terms of the visibility of disabled people in the profession, a lot of people said to us they very rarely saw other disabled people working within the profession. And our findings seem to suggest they are a minority in terms of people with visible impairments. But there are a high number of people with non-visible impairments. And even amongst the people that we interviewed with visible impairments, they 90% of those people with visible impairments said that they also had a non-visible impairment, but that they didn't reveal that they had a non-visible impairment, the majority of them said to their employer, because they felt it was almost a step too far. You know, like, even though somebody knows I'm disabled <laughs> because I can't hide it, they were saying, but it would be a step too far to say, I've also got these non-visible impairments that I need reasonable adjustments for too. You know, there's this anxiety on the part of everybody, even somebody who can't conceal that they are a disabled person, that being disabled is not going to be accommodated. It's going to be something that people will negatively react to and it will be a form of career disadvantage in terms of getting on um, within that profession. Mm -hmm. And I think the profession has to recognise that the statistics they have on the number of disabled people within the profession 
are a definite underestimate because people are literally not declaring, actually telling us we're not declaring on anonymous workplace surveys. So they're even frightened that they'll get found out then. It's such as the dis perceived disadvantage of being a disabled person within the profession. Following the publication of the uh, Legally Disabled Research, we had planned to sort of tour the country um, and disseminate the findings and to law firms. And as the, the, this all happened at the time of COVID, we went on to have online roundtables. I think we had about six with firms and it meant that people could join from all over the country, obviously, in a much easier way. And we were able to talk with firms. And what we found was that the firms were really quite ignorant and fearful of employing disabled people. So it, what, what that led to was LDD worked with uh, Professor Foster and um, Dr. Hurst, and we produced the Easy Wins document for firms so that they could have a checklist to go through to make it easier for them to understand what they needed to do. And also then we produced our very comprehensive guidance on reasonable adjustments. I mean, one of the most shocking things I found in the research, although quite a lot of it was shocking, was the fact that only 9% of disabled people interviewed found a positive experience with recruitment. So that 90-odd percent didn't have a positive experience. So we're trying to address that by having roundtables on recruitment practices for disabled people. And like Debbie said, you know, reasonable adjustments, having one point of contact at the firm, advertising it in a way that um, appeals to disabled people. But actually, we're just scratching at the surface. And I think the regulators, both um, the SRA and the LSB, need to get on board with this and and address these issues with firms so that they actively recruit disabled people. And until they do this and make people feel comfortable, then people who have a disability that they can hide, invisible disability, they won't feel comfortable to come out and share that disability until they feel though they won't be discriminated against in the workplace. And as Debbie said, you know, we know of many cases of people who revealed a disability to a recruiter and suddenly the vacancy vanished. And that goes for one particular person I can think of who had been in the profession for 20 years prior to having a diagnosis, was headhunted for jobs. And then suddenly they went to agencies and there weren't the jobs there that were advertised. So it's it's a very stark um, indicator of what is happening out there and how difficult it is to get into the profession. Despite, you know, reasonable adjustments can be um, funded by Access to Work, a government agency that helps with and supports disabled people with reasonable adjustments. People are just very ignorant of what is out there. And that's shocking, really. 
these roundtables that you uh, conducted, they clearly show that, you know, there there are changes being developed. So there are, you know, easy wins, as you said, guides for firms or for employers to make sure they're incorporating accessibility for those who need it, as well as reasonable adjustments. But that doesn't really seem to be enough. It seems like, you know, challenges with progression and retention arise from exclusionary working practices and culture, including, you know, for disabled people. And not enough really is, is being done to to change that. So that brings me on to the question, you know, what role in your view, I think you already touched, both have already touched upon this, but what role in your view can, can regulation play in improving equality, diversity and inclusion in the profession? And how can regulation change workplace culture for the better? I, th- I think that all these all these issues um, boil down to carrots and sticks. You know, you've got the workplace culture and you've got attitudes and it doesn't matter where you're doing work on diversity and inclusion and what area of diversity and inclusion you're doing this on. You know, there has to be some winning over of hearts and minds and you hope that by education and training, people become more aware of their behaviour being exclusionary or anti-inclusive, as LSB have recently um, coined the term. And that that sort of work needs to go on, but there is also a role for regulation and maybe some harder measures, I think. And I I think that my impression of the profession externally was that a lot of the large law firms um, can see themselves as unregulatable. <laughs> they see they see their out- outlook as being international rather than national. So perhaps the profession at one time was much more nationally based and regulation was, was easier because it was seen as UK-based regulation. And quite a lot of the corporate and large multinational firms their outlook is much more international and perhaps they don't fear regulation quite so much and don't take as much notice of regulators based within a specific country like the UK quite as much. I might be being unfair. I don't know. This was the impression that I I just picked up. But I think the regulators could do various things. I know in the public sector, we've got equality impact assessments are very popular. And there's the public sector equality duties. And people have said to me, but you can't just transfer those to the private sector. But you could try and transfer something quite similar in terms of equality impacts um, assessments and require all organisations to have to report to the regulator things like minimum standards. I mean, we have a law that, that says that reasonable adjustments should be made available to disabled people, be they clients or employees. But what we're finding is that that law is poorly understood on the one hand and then poorly applied on the other hand. And in between that, there should be a set of practices that should be acceptable to everybody as being proactively encouraging the use of that legislation in a way that will be beneficial to disabled people. So, you know, from the experiences we have for recruitment and 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 access to organisations, for example, why aren't the minimum requirements for organisations to publish on their websites uh, a disability contact or a disability officer or advisor uh, for when you want to access the organisation or 
have a special point of contact for requesting reasonable adjustments. It could be something very straightforward. I know there are small, medium and large scale organisations within the legal sector and resources varying. But just having those sort of minimum requirements, minimum requirements around recruitment, around training, the availability of flexible and part time contracts to attract more disabled people and retain them within the workforce. A requirement maybe to to, to carry out exit interviews to monitor why disabled people are are leaving organisations, how often people are requesting reasonable adjustments, Uh, pay differentials. We have gender pay gaps that are recognised by government. Could the sector say, well, what about the disability pay gap? Why is nobody monitoring this? Uh, Could the regulator be involved in that and the pay disparities? There's all sorts of things that if we have laws there, should the regulator be talking about the ethics around that, those legal requirements to, to, as a profession, ensure that those laws are actually enforceable within its own sector? We know of at least a couple of large firms and a few more. I mean, I, I was very pleased to attend an event online at Clifford Chance, and they're having a very proactive approach to recruitment of disabled uh, trainees, um, which I actually they kept very quiet, and it was incredible. And I think maybe working with firms like Clifford Chance and Reed Smith, who've had a proactive approach to um, disability recruitment and employment during the last few years, and and giving case studies as well to or other firms and organisations, this may help them, you know, take that fear away. I think. People are really very afraid of employing disabled people. They think there'll be a problem. Whereas what we found is that disabled employees are very loyal, hardworking employees. They don't want to leave firms if they're comfortable there. They will stay there rather than go elsewhere. Collaboration is is a really big theme centered around the 10-year strategy you know we have put a lot of emphasis on on collaboration you know how can stakeholders come together to deliver change so in your view what can others you know other stakeholders in the profession you've already mentioned law firms and regulators but any others how can they work together you know how can we all work together really to help reshape legal services to to better meet the needs of society I suppose universities have a role as well um, in the training and uh, the future generations of solicitors, barristers, all legal professions. In terms of other stakeholders, I think that there has been a reluctance within the legal sector to work with disabled people's activist organisations. And there's a lot of knowledge out there in third sector organisations that could be tapped into. And, you know, there are a lot of developments in things like the use of technology, artificial intelligence. You know, there's been a lot of experience from, for example, COVID working arrangements in disability rights organisations about homeworking that could be tapped into to make the profession more desirable, more accessible to certain groups, not just disabled people, but also people with caring responsibilities, other people, women who want more flexible employment opportunities. And we have a real window of opportunity at the moment 
to be a bit more imaginative in areas of job design and job redesign. It worries me that occasionally you see something in the press saying, oh, those that work from home will will be expected to take a, a cut in their salary because they're not travelling to work and they're not being part of the organisation. And there was something that came out today in the media about Microsoft finding out that 90% of managers think that their employees working from home aren't really working and 90% of employees think that they're much more efficient and productive when they work from home. So, the, you know, it's not a mismatch just between disabled people and their employers. It's, it's, it's a general attitude towards the employment of everybody and, and making sure that we use these opportunities to think more radically and more imaginatively about work in the future. Yeah, I, I think in the, in the Legally Disabled Research Report, the most refused and requested, well, most requested and then refused reasonable adjustment was working from home. And I mean, COVID and the pandemic turned that on its head. And now, you know, so many people want to have a hybrid way of working. I mean, what we mustn't do is think all disabled people want to work at home because they they don't necessarily. But, you know, that option's there. And and as you say, I know at the, the beginning of the pandemic, there was the fear that profits would plummet. And in fact, they didn't. Most law firms had a, an increase in their profits during the pandemic. So that's turned all these fears and prejudices on their head about remote, about remote working. And it shows that people are clearly still very motivated to work if they, you know, they're making more money than ever during the pandemic. And reflections, I think, are, are quite helpful. You know, it would be good to reflect on on how far the sector has come in the last 10 years. I think a lot of it's been accelerated in the last couple of years because of COVID and, and home working and flexible working. It really has sort of legitimised our ability to be efficient and purposeful and actually be productive, even if we are working from home. Um, so that's a, that's a really good start. But it'll be good to hear from you, you know, where you hope the legal profession to be in the next, you know, five to 10 years. I personally think that maybe a quota in firms would be a good way of going forward of disabled people in a professional posts, not not just sort of running the post room might be a way ahead. Although things have improved since the publication of Legally Disabled, we're still so far behind as a sector, disabled legal professionals. I think, you know, putting quotas in on uh, firms might be a way forward. If you look at diversity and inclusion work within the legal profession, which is quite a booming industry, there is a, a case for saying that there is a hierarchy of different inequalities within the profession and disability is very much at the bottom of that hierarchy and has been for many years and needs to play catch up and it may be as Jane says that quotas are the only way forward in things like training, uh, training contracts and even jobs. That was Debbie Foster of Legally Disabled and Jane Burton of Lawyers with Disabilities Division, the Law Society. We've heard some very interesting perspectives on how the profession can improve the career experiences of disabled people, as well as the role that regulators can play in collaborating with other organisations to develop principles for inclusion. The Legally Disabled project titled The Career Experiences of Disabled People Working in the Legal Profession investigated and mapped out the negative and positive experiences 
choices and views of qualified disabled people working or seeking to work in the legal profession. The report recommended that the profession engages in significant outreach work with schools, universities, parents and careers advisors to attract disabled people to the profession. It also recommended that the profession works more closely with disabled people's organisations and that more firms facilitate placement and work experience opportunities for disabled applicants in order to improve organisational and employer understanding and challenge negative stereotypes and misconceptions. So next up, I'm joined by Elizabeth Rimmer, who is Chief Executive of LawCare. And in this interview, she tells us about the work that LawCare does and shares her recommendations for promoting better mental health and well-being in the law. We are a charity that support and promote good mental health and well-being throughout the legal profession in the UK. Great. And one big aspect of the work that you do is is about promoting better mental health and well-being in the law. And back in 2021, you published the Life in the Law report, which identified high levels of burnout within the legal profession. Would you be able to tell us a bit more about what that report identified and share some of the recommendations that LawCare made to the sector to improve mental well-being in the law? Sure. So that report that we published last September, September 2021, Life in the Law, grew out of a sense at Law Care that we've been around for 25 years. This is our 25th anniversary, supporting and promoting good mental health and well-being, but recognizing that we needed to have a better understanding of, of what it is about the culture and practice of law that's undermining mental health of people that work in this sector. So sort of to paraphrase Desmond Tutu, we don't want to just be pulling people out of the river when they're drowning. We want to stop them falling in in the first place. So the the thinking behind that was to have a much better understanding about what the issues are. So we had over 1,700 legal professionals respond to the report and the full report is available on our website together with a summary and an infographic if you don't want to read uh, the 90 pages uh, that it is. And what we found in that, not surprisingly, is that legal professionals are under strain. And as you've already picked out, burnout was one of the things we looked at. This was the first research study to look at and measure burnout in legal professionals in the UK. And on the scale that we used, the cutoff point for being at high risk of burnout was 34.8. And our sample collectively scored 42.2. So significantly above the cutoff point already for being at high risk of burnout. And what was interesting about that when you drilled down a little bit further into it, is that we found that women, junior lawyers, black lawyers, Asian lawyers, and lawyers with disabilities had higher burnout scores compared to others. So we actually saw within the sector, there are some groups of people within the legal profession who are more impacted by some of the culture and practice of law. And I think it's a big wake-up call for the profession that you know our sample of people were significantly above that that risk of burnout, that people are working day in, day out in a situation where uh, they are not perhaps at their best and being able to be as productive as they can be. But as more importantly, you know, you would question 
people's competency and ability to deliver effective legal services if they are above a cutout point for being at high risk of burnout. So that was one of the key things we looked at. We also looked at mental strain, uh, which I've already touched on. We looked at intersectionality, um, looking at the different characteristics that people have and how those played into their experiences of mental health through the profession. And we also looked at what could be done to improve things. So we we had a comprehensive look at some of the key issues around mental health and well-being within the legal sector. Great. Thank you so much for that. And one of the recommendations that was made for legal professionals was to work towards providing perhaps management training to supervisors and managers and then freeing up some of their time so that they can, you know, frequently catch up with their team members to check in on how they are doing. You know, it's as simple as that. Mm. Is that something that you think is being looked into in a, in a bit more detail amongst firms? Or do you think that's something that's not being taken as seriously as, as it could be? I think that's on the to-do list. Yeah. Um, I think that, so that what you're getting at there is that we asked people um, who had a management responsibility for other people, have you had any training in how to manage others? And less than half of them had. And then we asked people, what would you find, what do you find is the most valued mental health support you have in the workplace? And what they said was, the opportunity for regular catch-ups. So you could call that supervision, effective management. So what people were saying is that they felt they weren't getting enough of those opportunities. And at the same time, we have people with that those responsibilities who haven't been trained or supported to do that well. And I think it's well known within the legal profession that the people that tend to become the managers and supervisors and team leaders the ones who are really good at being lawyers, but they may not necessarily have the skill set or haven't been supported to develop that skill set to manage people effectively. And you're often expected to manage a team as well as meet a fee earning target. And I think it's a, it's a generalization, but I think we hear it day in, day out at Lawcare. We, we run a support service that people can contact us by the phone, email, or web chat and speak to someone about challenges they may be facing uh, at work or pressures around working as a lawyer, is we hear day in, day out that what tends to happen is that pressure of time on, on their boss's agenda for the day means that the thing that gets slipped off the edge of the desk is that catch up with a colleague. And I think we need to do a much better job of recognizing within law that the effective management of people is absolutely key to supporting their mental health, but also, most importantly, about managing the risk and the reputation of the profession. Because when people are poorly managed or struggling, might be overwhelmed with work, they may have made a mistake, they might be in an environment where they don't feel able to tell anybody what's going on, that poses a significant risk of that person, you know, having made a mistake and possibly covering it up or making a poor ethical decision. So I think it really gets to the heart of legal work is effective management of people. And I don't think we do a good enough job of that in law. And I think legal education and practice doesn't really equip people to recognize, I don't think we value enough 
the kind of human skills. We're so focused on the delivery aspect and measuring the work we do through outputs and numbers and rankings and targets that we lose sight of in order to deliver all of that stuff. You've got to be managing your people well. And they are the greatest asset. Both your clients and staff are the greatest asset we have in the legal profession. This is a people business, and we need to be doing a much better job of managing and supporting our people. Yes, absolutely. And I think what really rings true from what you said is, you know, there is a a big sort of billable hours culture amongst the sort of big law firms uh, and and the thing is that you know supervision and effective management falls by the wayside as a result of that you know it's about prioritizing and ultimately if your sort of annual review or appraisal is going to be centered around how many billable hours you've done then th- there's going to be no incentive to want to focus on you know making sure you are a good people person that if you are a manager in a managerial role that you are looking after your trainees or you know people in more junior positions at your firm The other aspect of supervision and management is that legal work for many people, you know, there's an emotional context to this, that the work can be challenging on an emotional level if you're working with people who are vulnerable, who've experienced really difficult things like in family law, immigration, personal injury, crime. So the the toll that that takes on you day in, day out, listening and working with people in a very vulnerable position is we're not often equipped to understand other people's emotions and the impact that might be having on us. As as legal professionals, we're trained almost that somehow we're going to put on this professional jacket when we walk through the real door or the virtual door into our office. And somehow that's going to protect us from the day-to-day sort of emotional a burden that we may experience with the work and that but the reality is that's not the case and we can't divorce ourselves from our emotions and that there's a sense that our emotions if we allow them to come into our minds they are going to cloud our rational legal judgment but actually you can't divorce yourself from that and I think we need to be doing a much better job of helping legal professionals understand the emotional aspect of the work and the toll that that takes on both them and on their clients. And I think good management and supervision is a key part of that. Because if you're if you're having regular catch-ups with a colleague, then what happens in that space is that person builds a trusting relationship. And so somebody that is struggling or or waking up in the middle of the night worrying about a matter or is finding it really difficult to respond to a a client who may be very angry, um, but that anger is coming because they're frightened about their situation, then, you know, that by having that space where you're regularly catching up, that person's much more likely to tell you what's going on, and you're much more likely to be able to provide the support that's needed. So it's it's not only for the reasons we were talking about a bit earlier, it's also about helping to identify when there may be some other issues that have that have come into the picture that need addressing as well. 
Of course. And this issue isn't something that we just see in this country. You know, the International Bar Association published its mental well-being in the legal profession report, uh, which identified that there was a global trend of mental health concerns. So this is, you know, a well-known issue that's in recent times been really spotlighted. So the inroads are being made in terms of recognising and acknowledging the issues and the, the fact that they're there. But then the next question is, you know, what is being done to sustain sustain the profession you know are we doing anything in terms of tackling issues with progression and retention because with mental health and well-being you know they they can be barriers to progression and retention if people don't feel valued they don't feel welcomed or they don't feel like they're in a comfortable enough environment to share you know the, the their worries and concerns and they are more likely to leave as well yeah. so you know I mean I guess the question is then in terms of regulation what role in your view can regulation play in improving well-being and inclusion in the profession? Just picking up on the IBA's research first and I've been part of the IBA's global task force on mental well-being so I'm familiar with that work and I think it very much chimes with the ref- the findings that we had in the UK and it also builds on work that's been done in other jurisdictions like Australia and the United States. You know, there is a growing body of international evidence that we have some challenges in the law and across jurisdictions and different environments that lawyers work in, there are some very common threats. So I think that's it's that bigger picture. We're not unique in the UK with what we experience and in England and Wales in particular. And I think, you know, you're right. The, 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 the challenges we have around progression and retention is particularly as we come out of the pandemic, hopefully in this post-pandemic evolving world of work. I think many people have been reflecting on what matters to them, what they want from work. And so we're at a point where I think perhaps people are thinking a little bit more about their values and their purpose and where they fit in. And they're looking for organizations that align with that. But you also, you know, the points you were making around some of the cultural barriers that we have. If we have environments where people don't feel they're truly welcome and they fit in or they're not able to, they may have some, you know, not everybody can or wants to work 12 or 15 hours a day to meet those billing targets. That may exclude them from the opportunities to progress because they're not sort of working within that the current model that generally success is rewarded for the people that put the hours in. And I think that puts a lot of pressure on people to conform to a norm that doesn't work for everybody. And just because we've always done it this way, it's time to change that because it's a very excluding culture. I think the long hours culture and the billable hours culture um, excludes many people from fully being able to participate in that because what's, what's valued for progression is those bottom line hours and I think some firms are more imaginative now and are beginning to look more holistically at what individuals bring to the workplace in terms of, for want of a better expression, you know, kind of extracurricular activities they may be doing within the firm. So they may be driving through or working on diversity and inclusion initiatives or mental health and well-being initiatives or doing work to bring in new clients and build relationships with other organizations. And, and I think sometimes those things aren't really looked at in the round, or they might be a great manager, but what gets rewarded 
the people who put the hours in. So I, I think that is a challenge and that we, in this post-pandemic world, but for all, for, not only for that reason, I think firms and legal workplaces really need to be looking very hard at their culture and what is excluding people from full participation and progression. Because I think what we tend to see is people are coming in through the door, but there's quite a high attrition rate. You know, the data that's just published recently, the profile of the solicitors profession in England and Wales by the SRA. And, you know, there are more women entering the profession at a, a qualification point. But as you look across the profession, you don't see that percentage reflected in the sort of aged 50, 55 group. It's still predominantly more men at that end of the profession. So people are leaving and doing other things. So the question is, why is that? And I think that's because our culture is not uh, accommodating enough of of the, the different characteristics and expectations that people have. And I think just picking up one more thing is, you know, one size doesn't fit all. You, you we, we need to have a much more flexible, agile environment that accommodates the different needs of different people in order to, to stay in and work well within the law. But I think the role of um, the regulators is, I think it's really important to champion these issues and raise awareness about them, but not just because of the, the immediate benefits that good mental health and well-being brings to people as individuals that are more productive and happy and get more out of life. But it's also about, I think, ultimately, it's about delivering for consumers and poor mental health and well-being undermines competence. And so lawyers with poor competence are going to be less able to meet those expectations of clients, more likely to make a mistake or poor ethical decision. And also having a profession that reflects the society we serve, you need a wide range of people and perspectives in the law, staying in the law, because society is very diverse with a wide range of people and perspectives. So we need to be reflecting who we're here to serve. So if we if we don't do a better job of creating a culture that keeps a wide range of people in the law, we're not going to be meeting that objective either. And I think it's important for regulators to highlight these reputational risks that this poses um, and also do more around encouraging the development of human skills and emotional competence. That's really, really helpful, uh, useful to know. And I mean, our ongoing competence uh, project that we did recently um, sort of focused on that, you know, it's, it's about being well-rounded. It's not just about legal know-how. It's, it's It goes beyond that. You know, there are so many other factors in play, including you know, professional ethics. Our vulnerable consumers research as well looked into, you know, the way in which legal professionals behave with their clients as well and and how that sort of power dynamic you know between a lawyer and their client can have implications for the client who might feel you know vulnerable who might not feel like they know what's being told to them so again it's about using layman's terms as simple as that and not necessarily do we see that legal professionals appreciate you know the need to have that nuance but I mean, on a, on a last note, it would be great to hear from you, you know, your reflections on how far you think the sector has come in the last 10 years and where the where you think the, the profession might be in the next five to 10 years. Oh, that's a very difficult question. I th- I've, I've been at law care eight years. So I think there's been a significant uptick in engagement and discussion around mental health. 
and culture and the things we've been talking about. But I think the challenge is how that gets turned into action. So there's a lot of talk, but perhaps not enough being done to actually turn that into uh, a tangible action that's that's making a difference. And I think that it, what I'd like to see in the next five to 10 years is actually a profession that really values its people and puts people first when thinking about how legal services are delivered, both clients and legal professionals, and embracing the kind of the opportunities we have now, enlightened by the difficult experiences we had through COVID and the learnings we've had from that, is thinking we've got an opportunity probably like no other to really start embedding some of those practices that we know will make a difference to create healthier culture in law um, that creates an environment that's truly welcoming. And I, I think it's about moving away from the box ticking and making this real. And I think that's the challenge um, that we face for the next five to 10 years. This episode has been packed full of interesting perspectives. We've heard from Debbie Foster talking about improving the experiences of disabled people in the sector and from Jane Burton of Lawyers with Disabilities Division at the Law Society on the importance of facilitating a working environment which enables disabled professionals to feel comfortable about declaring their disabilities without losing opportunities. We've heard Elizabeth Rimmer of Lawcare share her thoughts on where she would like to see the legal sector in the next five to ten years. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope you found this first episode helpful and engaging. If you're interested in participating in our Reshaping Legal Services work, either through a podcast or through contributing to the Reshaping Legal Services microsite, please get in touch at contact at reshapinglegalservices.org.uk. You can also find out more on the microsite at reshapinglegalservices.org.uk. Thank you. Thank you.